You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Genesis chapter 24, we've spent the last two weeks looking at Genesis chapter 23 and how uh, Abraham approached the death of his wife. We spent one week talking about the funeral arrangements and uh, just kind of stepping back and thinking about our own funeral arrangements and how in the midst of dying and in the midst of preparing for death, we ought to take great care in how uh, we make sure that the gospel is presented clearly and effectively in the way that we even handle the, the body of a, of a loved one um, and how we communicate that, uh, that God's not done with that body and that when Christ returns, that body will be resurrected and restored. And, and then last week we talked about the hope that we have in the midst of our death, specifically how Jesus refers us to uh, the, the rejoicing in the fact that our names are written in heaven. Um, and so we stepped back and spent one week just talking about a, a theology of the book of life. And I would encourage you, if you did not get a chance to, to be here last week, that you take some time to listen to that. Hopefully it'll serve you um, as a means of encouragement about what our future looks like as believers. But we turn our attention to Genesis chapter 24 this morning as we continue uh, really three chapters that help us transition from Abraham as the patriarch of the Israelites to Isaac being that patriarch. We saw Sarah's death, and, and now Abraham begins to devote attention to making sure that his son is taken care of once he dies. Um, and then we'll see Abraham's death in the next chapter. And so this is one more chapter um, that allows us to see that transition from Abraham uh, to Isaac. Um, and so we're going to spend uh, today looking at chapter 24 uh, together, and I'm going to go ahead and give you our uh, summary sentence for today, which will help set the stage for where we're going to be. Genesis chapter 24. Our summary sentence Believers may trust in the Lord's promises to give them guidance and success as they act responsibly in obedience to His revealed will. So, we've already read through Genesis 24 this morning. We've seen how Abraham uh, brings his servant uh, before him and requests that he go and find a bride for Isaac. And we see how those events play out where he prays that God will give him guidance. We see the right individual come at the right time to meet the servant. We see how um, the family is in agreement to release her. She's in agreement to go back um, and to marry Isaac. Um, And so what I really think this whole chapter kind of pushes us to see is that believers can trust in the Lord's promises. Because Abraham's decision-making is based on the promises made to him. This is why we see that he will not allow Isaac to go find a wife for himself, that Isaac can't be permitted to leave the land. And the only people in the land are Canaanites, and and Abraham's not okay with him marrying a Canaanite. And so that's where the servant comes into play. Um, But the believers can trust in the Lord's promises to give them guidance and success as they act responsibly in obedience to his revealed will. So essentially what we're going to see is that as believers, we're responsible to act upon the things that are clearly given to us in Scripture, things that we know for sure that God desires for us to do. We act upon those things confidently, and we do it in such a way that we trust God will guide us in the areas where he doesn't clearly reveal it to us. That if we step forward in faith and we're actively doing things that we know he wants us to do, that we can then trust when we come upon situations where we don't know exactly what to do, that he's going to lead and guide and direct us through whatever means necessary um, as we approach those situations. And that's what we see play out in this, in this story. We see the servant 
responding to Abraham's commands to him, to the oath that he takes. Abraham is motivated by the promises that God has given to him. He knows that Isaac has to have a wife, right? He knows Isaac's not called to singleness. So there's no question there as to whether he should even pursue marriage. He has to have a wife. He has to have offspring for this nation to continue to grow. Um, so that, that, that element's removed. Um, that's, that's not an element that gets removed for us, right? We have to evaluate our desires to determine if we're called to singleness, called to marriage. Paul talks about that. Um, and so moving past that, Abraham knows that Isaac needs a wife, knows that they have to live in the land. And so it, it, it keeps him from thinking about Isaac going and, and living somewhere else and marrying somebody. Um, and so he's motivated by those promises. The servant uh, moves forward based on what Abraham has communicated to him. But then there's some some question as to, okay, I'm journeying back. How do I find a wife? How do I find the right one? And that's where prayer comes into play. And then he's really trusting that God will guide him each step of the way. And so we'll see how that plays out today. Um, just a few things to note as we begin. First of all, we've already said this is the longest chapter in Genesis. And I, I hinted at this that I think that it's perhaps because this is a picture of what normal looks like for us what you'll note here in this chapter is that god doesn't speak directly to anybody in this passage right he doesn't he doesn't show up with the servant at the spring and say that's her that's the one that's supposed to marry isaac right we've seen a lot of direct revelation from god to abraham leading up to this and so as new testament believers who who don't receive that we could easily look at it and say, well, wow, it was easy for Abraham. He knew exactly what God wanted him to do because God was always telling him directly. Here's a chapter where God doesn't speak at all. And really from a what we think of miraculous standpoint, God doesn't do any miracles in this chapter either. There, there's no supernatural revelation that this is the wife. This is simply a response to a, a, a what we're going to see as a normal prayer about normal circumstances. God doesn't speak at all, and yet he's mentioned 17 times by the characters in this chapter. So thinking about what our normal looks like, we don't hear directly from God. God doesn't speak audibly to us. He's given us his word, which we believe to be sufficient for us as a New Testament believer. And yet we spend a lot of time talking about God, right? Which is consistent with this passage. These people are talking about how God is leading them and how God is guiding them and the promises that God has made to them. To me, this is one of the more normal chapters in Genesis for how it relates to us in the New Testament. Here we have a chapter, people trying to be obedient to God. They're not hearing directly from God. They're just being obedient to what they've already heard directly from God. We hear that from his word. They're acting upon that and then trusting for any further guidance to come from him as responses to prayer. Um, and so I really think this sets a great pattern for us for how we're to operate in the New Testament. Um, all the characters in this story acknowledge that God is working behind the scenes. We said there's no miracles, there's no direct word from God, but everybody seems to think that he's the sole cause of the events, right? Whether it's the servant, whether it's Rebecca, whether it's Laban and her family, everybody kind of seems to come to the same conclusion. This wouldn't be playing out this way unless God was doing this. Again, oftentimes what we see in our lives. We don't hear from God. Uh, we don't see necessarily big miracles necessarily from God a lot of times in our life. But what we do see is God orchestrating events as we're being obedient to his revealed will. 
as we're praying for further guidance, he leads and guides and directs us right where we need to be. Um, And so this is an Old Testament chapter that I think speaks a lot to what we experience in the New Testament. Right off the bat here in chapter 24, we see that Sarah's death is weighing heavily upon Abraham. Not from that depression standpoint that we said in 23, he's able to to kind of come out of the grieving and mourning process. But it says, now Abraham was old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And he says to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I make you make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. I think Sarah's death is a wake-up call for Abraham that he needs to put everything in order before his death. Specifically, he needs to find a wife for Isaac. Now, he's going to still live for another 30-plus years here, um, but I think just the, 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 the idea of having to bury his wife helps him realize that his, his long-term uh, lifespan is coming to an end, and so he's got to start making some decisions, wants to make sure that he passes on the right legacy and the right tools that Isaac's going to need to continue into the next generation um, what God has promised to Abraham's descendants. And so he wants to start working towards developing a plan to get the right woman in place for Isaac as his wife. Uh, the chief servant here is summoned and committed to an oath. The servant is not named, um, but if we think back to other servants that Abraham has referenced. Eleazar was the individual, you'll remember, who Abraham said was kind of the top servant that was really the heir of everything unless God brought a son into play. Um, So if Eleazar has not died, this is most likely Eleazar, which is significant because here's a guy who, up until Isaac's birth and Ishmael's birth, believed himself to be the heir of everything, and now he's been usurped by Isaac. Isaac is now the heir to everything, and so Uh, Eleazar is not going to get anything, and yet we see such a faithful response by this individual, right? He he understands his place. We see a lot of humility in the servant. He's there to direct attention to Isaac, not himself. Um, Eleazar could have easily showed up and and tried to be the hero that that looked for a wife himself if he didn't have one. Um, Instead, he's on a mission, and he's on a mission for his master. And so we see a lot of devotion from this servant and how he handles the whole situation. And then what we see in the, uh, the chapter here is a lot of tension that exists throughout the story. And we see that God is faithful to overcome each obstacle in the story. First of all, we start with a question, will a girl ag- agree to return to Isaac? The servant has this question. If I go and, and start talking about Isaac and wanting a, a woman to leave her family to come and, and marry an individual that she's never met, never seen, will I be able to find a girl that will do this? Will the right girl be found by the servant? Once Abraham assures them that, yes, um, we'll find a girl, you'll find a girl that will want to come back. And if not, you're released from the oath. The question now is presented to the servant by himself. Can I find the right girl? Not just any girl, but the right girl, the one that will serve my master's son well and be a, a great compliment to what God wants to do in both of them. Will the girl be allowed to return by her family? That's another tension that we see. Not only is it about finding a girl that's willing to come and and the right girl that would be willing to come, will the family allow her to come? Um, And so there's there's a lot of different things at play here. Will a girl return to Isaac? Will there be the right girl that wants to do this? Will the girl be allowed to by her family? Um, Will she want to do it if she's granted permission by the family? And we see all this tension in this chapter, and we see God overcome each one of these issues. 
We're going to start by looking at a God who demonstrates providence. A God who demonstrates providence in this chapter. Abraham seems to rely heavily upon the fact that God is going to accomplish this, even though he's sending his servant to do the task. Um, Abraham says in verse 6, See to it that you do not take my son back there, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Abraham seems to put a lot of uh, expectation upon God ultimately being the one to accomplish this. We're going to see that the servant has to present a persuasive speech to get the family to let Rebecca go. Abraham's not putting all his eggs in the servant's basket of this is the most persuasive individual that could do this. He's saying God is going to accomplish this. You're going to go, you're going to do it, but ultimately God is going to go before you uh, and his presence will secure this and make this happen. When we talk about providence, um, what we mean by that, and we're going to use that word several times today, what we mean by that is God's activity in the world where he directs everything for his purposes. God's activity in the world where he directs everything for his purposes. That's what we mean by providence. It's, it's, it's similar to how we use the word sovereignty here at our church probably. Um, it's the idea of, of God being in control, being in control in a specific way, um, accomplishing things for his purposes. It's, it's really an understanding this is the outworking of Romans eight twenty eight through 30. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called and those he called, uh, those whom he called, he also justified those whom he justified. He also glorified. Okay, it's it's how we understand God working everything for good purposes for his children. It's him actively being involved in our daily lives to ensure that that his purposes are accomplished. And so the circumstances that we encounter are all working together for these good purposes to make us into the image of his son. Okay, And so we see God's stamp of providence all over this chapter. All these people coming together, all these events overlapping in such a way that Isaac ends up with a wife by the end of this chapter. We see Abraham, first of all, trusting in the promises of God or the providence of God. He talks about the angel who would go before the servant to guarantee success. God would direct him to the right woman. The ultimate success would rest on God's faithfulness, not the servant's performance. Abraham even lets him out of this. Um, just so that there's no question as to who's ultimately responsible, he says, if after all of this you cannot find somebody, um, he lets him out of the oath, um, is what, is what uh, Abraham communicates to his, his servant here. Um, God brings about a bride for Isaac through the normal events of life, normal events that are divinely planned. And so we've already highlighted the fact there's no, there's no big visible miracle that can be observed in this story. Um, and we've said that this is probably best understood as the typical pattern for believers today. Normal events allow us to trust God, obey God, and then rejoice over his providence in our life. 
And we could probably all, if given some time to think, could come up with circumstances and situations in our life where we could identify God's providence in those circumstances and those situations. How he was obviously, once we've come through it, we can look back and see how his handprints are all over it, how he was leading and directing and guiding certain individuals and certain events to produce good purposes. Um, And so this is kind of a picture, I think, of what we can expect to be a normal, typical pattern for believers today. He is not a God of miracles who shows up sometimes. His greatness is seen in how he arranges all events of life to suit his plans and purposes. All of life really becomes a miracle when viewed this way. Okay, so we could easily get discouraged and and look into scripture and see big miracles, big events that are supernatural in nature and question and wonder why we don't see God doing that more often in our life. Um, And I think it's just a a misunderstanding, really, of what uh, truly warrants being called a miracle, because it really is a miracle when we look at life this way, that that God is working everything behind the scenes, that he doesn't have to step in and and do something that that goes against the natural flow of events. He steps in uh, constantly. He's always active, directing all of the events for his purposes. And when we see life in that through that lens, Really, everything around us becomes a miracle. God is orchestrating everything for our good. And so a God who demonstrates providence, I think it's important to emphasize that before we even start to look at the other details of this chapter, because his providence is all over this chapter. We see, secondly, a father who exercises foresight. A father who exercises foresight. Abraham was concerned about the spiritual future of his son. Um, And I think this is a good reminder to us that we also as believers should be concerned about the next generation. As Abraham comes to the end of his life, he's concerned about what he's passed on to his son, wants to make sure that his son has everything needed for success after he is gone. And so he's really thinking through, what am I leaving behind? What am I investing in? What do I still need to do before my time is done here? And as we get older, that should be something that we're thinking through. What still needs to be tended to? What still needs to be done? How can God still use me to invest in those, particularly those that are going to be here long after I'm gone? Um, And so Abraham is thinking in those terms and uh, really wanting to make sure that he sets up his family, specifically his son, for success. Uh, Abraham wants to ensure that his son marries well and stays separated from the sin around him. Somebody mentioned just the idea of separation here. Um, the idea that Abraham doesn't want uh, Isaac to to get a wife from the Canaanite people. Um, probably helpful to remind ourselves that the Canaanite people are cursed. Remember earlier in Genesis by God as, as Noah's child, uh, Can, uh, the Canaanite people are cursed because of what happened with Ham. Okay, um, And so he's wanting to direct attention back to a group of people that aren't cursed, that God has special blessing upon he and his descendants. Let's make sure that we honor that. Let's make sure we keep, step, uh, keep a, a step in line with that. And let's make sure that Isaac's wife comes from a group of people that are not cursed. Um, this speaks to what we see in the New Testament as well. This isn't just an Old Testament concept. We do see that, uh, as Jonathan mentioned, that Um, The idea of separate bloodlines continues into the law that the children of Israel were to remain separated. Um, It wasn't a uh, a racial thing, uh, more so as it was a uh, a worship thing. It was a matter of these individuals being individuals that were drawn to idolatry. Um, And in order to protect and preserve a people that were set apart for God's purposes, 
uh, God had required that they not intermingle and intermix. Um, because we, we, know, we know stories of individuals who profess to be believers and then get intertwined with people that aren't believers. More often than not, the non-believer is able to, to gain sway over the one proclaiming to believe, be a believer versus the other. Um, especially when one enters into a relationship that way. Now, Paul talks in the New Testament about the, the one who becomes a believer and is married to an unbeliever. That individual ought to stay married in hopes that the one will be one to Christ. So Paul is, is never going to advocate that one should divorce and separate simply because one has become a believer and the other has not. As long as that spouse will stay and cooperate and, and work on the marriage, then, then Paul encourages that marriage to stay together. Um, but he also gives warnings about not entering into a marriage willingly and knowingly when it would result in someone being unequally yoked. Second Corinthians chapter 6 Verses 14 through 18, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols for we are the temple of the living God? Now we've come under criticism before as a church because people here have been counseled to not pursue relationships with individuals that were not believers. And sometimes that's met with resistance. Somebody as a believer starts to develop a relationship with somebody who's an unbeliever or at least someone who's not very vocal about being a believer. They allow emotions and feelings to get uh, to get involved before a, a sound decision is made as to whether I should or should not be with this person based on who they follow. Um, and so we've had people who who have left our church because they were counseled in a way that this would be sinful if you continue to pursue this. Um, and Paul's very clear about the reasons for this, that this will not end well, uh, that when you've got someone who's trying to follow the light and one who is ingrained in darkness to try to bring those two together will not produce marital unity, that it will produce a train wreck. Okay, and so Abraham's anticipating this in the Old Testament. We can't have this happen. Um, I've been here long enough. I've seen maybe even referencing back the destruction that was was happening with Lot's kids. Right. Lot had uh, maintained a grieving spirit over the sin in Sodom. But we see his daughters are are very Sodom in their thinking. Right. Um, Even in how they interact with him after the fact. Um, And he may even have had enough familiarity with how. Uh, Lot's kids were being raised and how they were uh, engaged to be married to individuals who were not God-fearing. He says, that's not happening for my son. Uh, we got to think outside the box. We got to think differently. We're not going to have him marry anybody um, in this area. And Abraham is very intentional about doing that. Uh, he places some stipulations upon the future wife of Isaac. Um, she must not be a Canaanite. She must be a relative of Abraham's family. And Isaac must not leave the land in order to get her. These are three stipulations that Abraham places upon the servant before he sends him out. She can't be a Canaanite. She must be a relative of Abraham's family. And Isaac's not allowed to go with him to get her. We already said that she's not a Canaanite or she can't be a Canaanite because he doesn't want her intermar- him intermarrying with the cursed um, he doesn't want Isaac to go back to get her either because I believe he doesn't want him to be swayed to stay and abandon the land. Um, there would be a lot of pressure for Isaac to show up and 
introduce himself and want to take a, a daughter with him, um, there would be a lot of persuasion for him to stay. Um, and the persuasion may have worked more effectively when, when Laban even entertains the idea of staying for an additional 10 days had Isaac been there. Um, had Isaac been there wanting to make sure that he doesn't do anything to botch this whole situation up, he may have agreed to that. You know, he may have seen that as a, as a way to serve this family and to show what kind of guy he is. Um, and so Abraham says, I don't want that dynamic introduced at all. Isaac stays here. There's no chance of this going awry with him going back to find a girl, falling in love, and being seduced by her family to stay. And so Abraham wants that protection upon his son. Um, and he wants to, to know kind of the background and the history of the girl that would marry his son. And so he wants somebody that's a part of the family. Um, again, I don't know how heavy uh, this passage should be used as a, as a relationship chapter. There's definitely principles here that I think translate into the New Testament. Um, I, I think as parents, we ought to be involved in, in who our kids are, are choosing as partners. Um, I think we should be heavily involved in it. Um, I plan to be heavily involved in how I guide both AJ and Abram into the type of girl they pursue. And then I plan to be extremely heavily involved in the individual that wants to pursue my daughter. Um, and, and it's not going to be just up to them and the choices that they make. There's going to be heavy involvement for me and Lauren, and I think it ought to be that way. Um, I think at the age that they're at and the, the feelings that often come into play, they need someone outside that can speak truth to them and it can help lead them and guide them and help them avoid potential mistakes. And so we see Abraham being heavily involved. Isaac's not asked what type of girl he wants. Isaac's not asked any type of opinion on this. Now, I realize this is a cultural thing, and so it's obviously different than how we operate. Most of our kids would, would certainly bucket the idea of arranged marriages and uh, being introduced to their husband or wife on their wedding night, which is seemingly what happens here with Isaac and Rebecca. That probably would not go over well based on the culture that we're raising our kids in. It does not mean, though, that we should then abandon all parental involvement in the choices and decisions that our kids make in this area. I would, I would highly encourage our parents to consider that. Um, as, your child, as your children continue to grow, um, that you become very involved in that selection process. Maybe uh, not as, as strict as far as the decision-making so much as we see Abraham here, but certainly involved in such a way where um, you've raised your kid, hopefully, in a way where they want to rely upon your wisdom, where they're seeking that out, where they expect that and desire that and want that, realizing that not all kids turn out the way that we raise them, that, that children are their own individuals. And sometimes I know um, parents have done all the right things and the child still goes in a different direction. But we can certainly do all that we can as parents to, to make choices and decisions that would cause our child to see the wisdom that we possess, to desire and want that wisdom um, Isaac seems to cooperate with this, certainly. Um, and, and when Rebecca shows up, is very ready to embrace the decisions that his dad has made that have led to this certain woman coming back to be a part of, of their family. So um, just kind of a tidbit of information there to help you um, as parents think through uh, what that may look like uh, down the road. Uh, we certainly have a father here who's exercising a lot of foresight and oversight of this process, making sure that his, that his child is protected we next see a servant who practices faithfulness. Um, a servant who practices faithfulness. As uh, uh, the servant comes and, and begins to interact with Abraham, um, he, he secures this, this oath, this vow. And I'm going to be honest, um, the way they do this is really odd and really weird. And you really get into the language. And um, it's probably uh, further in than just the thigh um, where they're doing this. And, and there's not a whole lot of information in Scripture as to why they're doing it this way. Um, 
If you'd like to learn more about that, feel free to study that on your own. Um, I don't think it's a huge point of the passage, and so we're not going to we're not going to go too heavily into how they did this oath, but there was certainly an agreement that that these wishes and plans needed to be carried out uh, very specifically. Um, And we have a servant here who practices faithfulness, and he's a servant who seems to have learned a level of unwavering faith from watching Abraham. Um, This servant responds to the instruction that Abraham gives him, really believes that based on Abraham's instructions that God's going to guide him, he responds to that. It says in verse 10, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts, from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of the water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink. And I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you may have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. This is a servant who's ready to abandon everything uh, in his faith to God, that God's going to bring the right girl to him. Um, It's a servant who's learned that humble prayer is the first step in seeking needed guidance. Um, We were talking a little bit about this at our Man Up Breakfast um, this past week, that um, we should certainly be in a mindset that prayer is is, is our means of approaching uh, uncertainty. Um, you know, I was challenging our guys this week that um, we were talking about spiritual warfare and um, just the fact that, that there is more at play than we oftentimes realize. And so we want to pray for protection every single day praying for protection for our families, praying that we don't make choices and decisions that would uh, put our jobs in jeopardy or our families in jeopardy. Um, that, you know, I was telling the guys that I, I start each day like that now, um, that I'm praying that God will guide every step of my day, that I will do nothing that puts my family in jeopardy or my job in jeopardy, realizing that I could easily make stupid decisions if left to myself. Um, this guy, this servant, approaches this situation and says, I've got big expectations that have been placed upon me by my master, and I don't know really how to even go about getting the right girl. Um, and so he lacks wisdom. Um, he needs wisdom. And uh, thankfully, um, he, he sets an example for us about how we can pray for this. But we're also encouraged to do this and respond similarly in James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Um, This is a clear way that we demonstrate that we're relying upon the wisdom of God and not our own wisdom. Our headmaster in uh, one of our devotions this week even posed to us, what's the difference between godly wisdom and earthly or worldly wisdom? Worldly wisdom is oftentimes ingrained in pride. As an individual, if I'm put in a position of authority where I get to make decisions, I, uh, I have to wrestle with my own pride to not make those decisions in such a way where I show myself to be wise. That I have to embrace a position that says I need wisdom constantly because I'm in this position. This servant has been given a great task, a task that is not clearly answered for him. And so he seeks wisdom and guidance, just like James talks about. He prays for it. Uh, he earnestly prays for it. He recognized the importance of his mission. And I think he probably understood this is bigger. This is, this is 
bigger than, than, than what I even realize, right? It's not just that my boss wants me to go find a wife for his son. This is my chosen boss who is in covenant relationship with the God that I'm praying to right now in a, in a totally different way than I am. I've not, I've not had that communicated to me by this God. And so he realizes that this is a bigger task than just finding a wife for a, for a, for a son. That this is finding a, a promised one that's going to come into union with the promised son that is going to continue to produce a promised nation. And so I think he realizes the weight of this situation. This is a big task. Uh, far be it from me that I'm going to make this decision by myself. I mean, think about the glory that would come from him going into this, selecting a woman, bringing her back, it all working out great. The servant gets all the glory for it. He's the one that went and picked the girl out. And what we really see throughout this whole story is that every step of the way he gives, he gives glory to God for giving him the answers to the, the questions that he's faced with. He always refers back to God's the one that told me this. God's the one that revealed this to me. He wants no glory for it, which may be why his name's even excluded from the chapter. Um, even if it is Eleazar, his name is absent because he keeps giving glory to God for the decision-making process that plays out in this chapter. Um, he recognized the importance of his mission. He recognized his need for supernatural help, but he could not rely on the wisdom of man alone. This is also the first recorded prayer for guidance in Scripture. Remember we've said every time we come across the first in Genesis, it usually kind of sets a pattern for how we should understand it moving forward. Here's an individual who's praying. Um, it's really the first prayer that we have in Scripture beyond what we see Abraham doing with God interceding for Sodom, but he's directly talking to God there. Here's the, the first average individual like us praying to God recorded in Scripture, and he's praying for guidance. Um, and I think it's important to note a couple of things about his prayer. First of all, he does not ask for a miraculous sign. Where, where, where do we, can we think of in Scripture where an individual may be asked for a miraculous sign when he was seeking out guidance? Gideon, right? Gideon puts out a fleece, and the whole, the whole perspective and context there is that the fleece is either wet or dry in an opposite way of everything around it. That it defies what you would expect. You would not expect the fleece to be dry when everything else is wet. You wouldn't expect the fleece to be wet when everything else is dry. He prays for a miracle. Um, it's not something that would naturally occur. Okay? What I think is interesting here. The servant is responding to revealed will. He's being obedient. He's stepping out. He's being active. Um, but he prays that God will guide him through the natural means of the events that are, that are before him. He doesn't pray for uh, this girl to show up and to have some type of special glow upon her. Um, he doesn't show any type of desire for God to act supernaturally. He just wants God to guide him as the normal things are going to play out before him, that he'd be able to discern the normal events and be able to have wisdom to make the right selection. Okay? I don't think this is necessarily a call for us to lay out criteria for every decision. Um, I think Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 uh, gives us a little bit of insight maybe in how we should approach normal decision-making processes. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. That promise that as we're being obedient to what we do know, God is going to guide and direct us into the things that we don't know. But I do believe that he is clinging to God's providence, and he's praying that he will be able to see 
that providence. Again, he's not asking for something unique and special. He's just praying that he'll be able to see what God is actively doing before him. There's a quote here by, um, I don't know this guy. Uh, One of the commentators just quoted him, so I don't know um, how significant he is. But I like the quote. Nothing is more characteristic of a biblical man than a profound and pervasive conviction about the role of divine providence in everyday human affairs. This guy seems very sensitive to the fact that God is working around him, and he wants to be cued into how God is doing that. Um, He realizes that God is doing things. He wants to know what God is doing around him. Um, And so he determines a criteria that he presents to God. Now, I don't know if you've been in a situation where you really needed guidance and direction and you prayed something similar. Um, There's been a couple of cases in my life where I honestly did not know what to do or specifically needed guidance and encouragement to do something specific that I was wrestling with. And I prayed specifically for God to do normal events like this that would give me confirmation. Um, And I'm not going to share specifics with you because I don't want to set up any type of unhealthy expectation that every time we do this, God responds. But I can tell you there were at least two incidents in my life that came to mind immediately this morning where I did not know what to do in a situation. I'm I'm being obedient to his revealed will, uh, trying to do what God wants me to do, but I'm faced with a circumstance or a situation where I just don't know. Um, and so I'm praying about it and I prayed specifically that if God wanted me to do a certain, uh, a certain thing that he would allow something specific to happen. Um, again, it wasn't a miraculous thing. And if even though I went into details with it, you would say, are, 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 that wasn't, that wasn't really that big of a deal. That wasn't really that special. It was to me because I prayed specifically that it would happen that way if God wanted me to do it. And again, that's not a big habit of mine. That's not something that I readily rely upon. Um, and even thinking this morning as to why I was even praying in such a way, I realized, uh, maybe to my own detriment a lot of times, um, most of my youth and college years were spent where, uh, and I didn't realize it until I was thinking about it this morning, I did not have an individual older than me in my life that I felt like I could go to and ask wisdom about. Not one individual in my life older than me did I feel like I could go to and ask them how I should handle situations. I say that because I want people that are younger than me in this church to realize what a blessing you guys have with the amount of individuals in our church that are readily available. And I know they're readily available because I know they readily sit down with people in our church to offer wisdom and guidance. That was something that I did not have through some of the most crucial years of my life. I was relying upon people that were my age to help me answer big questions in my life. Um, And so this is a huge blessing in our church that God has given us individuals that are ready and willing and able to offer important guidance and wisdom to people that are younger than them. And so I would encourage our younger guys and girls to lean heavily upon that wisdom that's been made available to you in this church. Um, And so... It may have been that God realized that I didn't have anybody else to give me the guidance that I needed. And so he did answer some of these prayers um, in in ways that helped me know what direction he wanted me to take in these different situations. This guy's praying and he's praying in a specific way. God, I need you to do it this way. And he determines a criteria that would be hard and revealing about this woman's character. Right. So what he's even asking isn't some type of special supernatural 
arrow to be pointed over this girl's head. He prays that her character will be revealed in a very specific way. Something that's already there, right? He's praying that the girl who possesses the type of character that will make a great wife for Isaac, one who is going to be a leader of a family, that is going to have to demonstrate servant-type leadership. He says, I want to see her character on display. I'm not going to get six months to interact with these girls to figure out who's got great character. He says, so I'm going to put something forth here, God. I need this girl to come out and demonstrate the kindness and generosity and hospitality that she is going to need to be the new matriarch of the Israelite nation. And I need to see it real fast, real quick. Something that I don't have the chance to see over a long period of time. And so he prays that the woman that's supposed to be Isaac's wife will demonstrate her character through the drawing of water for his camels. It's expected that someone would give him a drink. He's, a, he's, a, he's someone who's journeyed a long way. So these girls are going to show up. And this would have been the pattern. It talks about how it was late in the evening. And this was the time when the young ladies would have come to draw water for the family. It's not the hottest part of the day. And so they would save this chore for the end of the day. Um, it says in verse 11, he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of the water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And so he's put himself in position to, to, to interact with the girls, to see who the right woman is for Isaac. Um, and he puts a difficult criteria upon what he's looking for. It would have been expected that these girls would have voluntarily given him a drink of water. What's not expected is that they would give the water to the 10 camels that he brings with him. Let me give you some details as to why. Um, this would have been clearly them going the second mile. First of all, he brings 10 camels, and if they were completely down and dehydrated, they could drink up to 25 gallons of water each. Okay, so we're talking about 250 gallons of water. Um, through archaeology, there have been uh, pitchers and water pots discovered that could hold up to three gallons of water. So it may be that um, she's got one of the, the supersized pitchers that would have allowed her to do even less drawing than if she had a gallon pitcher. So let's just say she has three gallon, a three-gallon pitcher. We're talking about 80 to 100 times she's going to have to draw water out to, to give drink to these camels. And depending on what type of well it is, it talks about her going down and coming back up. Some of them were designed in such a way that you had to go downstairs, get the water, and then come back up. This potentially would have been a two- to three-hour task for her to do. Okay, so this isn't just, hey, can I have a sip of your drink? This is, uh, hey, can I have a sip of your drink? And can you spend the next three hours giving my camels all the water they need as well? So you could have easily expected just your average uh, girl to show up and give you a drink. You could have expected your, your, uh, your girl that you never want anybody in your family to marry to show up and give you a drink if you were traveling. Like that would have been the norm, the expected. Of course, here's some water. I mean, you're, you're going to only drink a couple, you know, a few ounces, right? And, and, and you're not going to do much damage to the pot of, of three gallons that I have here. And she willingly offers to do this. He doesn't ask, right? Like part of the criteria is that she will, she will assess and identify the situation and offer to do this. Because it, it, you could also potentially have the wrong girl show up and you ask her and she'd be the type of girl that doesn't know how to say no. And so she does it. But she does it grumbling and complaining and hating it. But this is all generated by Rebecca, right? And she says, yeah, I'll give you a drink. And it looks like you got 10 camels here. They're probably thirsty. Let me devote time to make sure that they get the drink they need as well. 
And so this is a revelation of her character, the type of girl she is. And immediately he recognizes her as the type of woman that he wants to bring back to Abraham to give to Isaac. God's providence is seen in that Rebecca arrives as he is praying. She had already left the house. And, and Denise brought attention to this. It says, um, uh, verse 13, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca, who was born to Bethul, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. He's praying and asking for something that God has already answered before he's prayed and asked for it. This is consistent with what we see in um, Isaiah chapter 65, verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Anybody else think of a situation where people were praying and God was actively answering their prayers before they could finish praying? Let me think of anything in, in Scripture. Acts chapter 12, where Peter's in jail and the church is praying. Um, and they're praying in such a way that even as God's answering their prayer, they don't fully believe that he's doing that. Right? Peter's at the door. Uh, Peter can't be at the door. We're praying that God will let him out of jail. Um, he's in jail right now. And, and so they kind of miss the fact that God is actively answering their prayer as they're in the midst of praying for it. Um, sometimes God does it that way, and he does it certainly here which is another nod to his providence that he's already behind when Rebecca would come to the um, to the well, that he had already orchestrated the events of all of her day to where she would have the right uh, the right schedule that would allow her to come as he's praying for this specific thing. Um, the servant watches and waits to see how she acts. Will she complete the task? He doesn't even jump on the fact that just because she offers to do it, that it automatically makes her the right one. He wants to see her carry through the two to three hour task. Will she stop short? Will she say, oh, that's probably enough. I've done my duty. I'm going home. It's been an hour. He waits until she completes the task before he starts giving her jewelry and gifts and uh, kind of anointing her as the girl that he wants to take back to uh, his master's son. Uh, the servant rejoices and worships God when learning that she is indeed related to Abraham because that's also the other criteria. Um, you know, he doesn't know for sure just because she's watering the camels is she also related. Um, and it says that... Um, Verse 21, the man gazed at her in silence as she's working to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not because he needs her to be related to, um, to Abraham as well. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring, weighing a half shekel, two bracelets for arms, weighing ten gold shekels, and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethul, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. He gives quick acknowledgement to the source of the victory here that, that God has led him to this. No doubt that God has answered him. Uh, he faithfully acknowledges the Lord's provision of guidance each time. The servant refuses to be detained later. Um, he remains faithful to the task as he presents, and he goes through and kind of reiterates everything that we already know about the story, but he tells this to Laban, to her brother, and to all the family members so they can kind of embrace the fact that, that this is God's providence. Um, and they seem to acknowledge that. Um, it says in verse 50, then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. 
Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. But then we see they try to deter them and detain them. Let her stay a little bit longer. Um, it says in verse 55, her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while. At least 10 days after that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. Um, this is important because this kind of sets the stage for how we understand Laban in the future when Jacob, who is uh, Laban's nephew, shows up and wants his daughter. Laban keeps tricking him into staying longer, right? I want you to work seven years and, and never tells him that he's working for the wrong daughter and then gets another seven years out of him. Um, it's probably worth mentioning that had they stayed 10 days, it would have potentially turned into 10 years. Um, that, that he was not going to relinquish Rebecca easily um, had he been given any ground to be able to retain her. Um, and so the, the servant kind of demonstrates um, a level of resolve here that he's not going to be deterred and not going to allow himself to be um, um, switched off of his role. We close with a relationship that is based on trust. And so uh, the servant shows up, and, and we first see the trust of the family here, um, a servant who's been practicing faithfulness, but then a relationship that is based on trust, the trust of the family. The story is retold to secure the blessing of Rebecca's family. It convinces them that God is working this out. And then I believe the family concludes that something bigger is at play than what they understand. Now, um, Tom had mentioned the, the idea of the family worshiping God. Um, and, and as I was reading and studying this, it, it, it certainly presents it that way. And it may be the case that they are worshiping God, but I think it would be a mistake to say they are only worshiping God. Cause you'll remember Laban is the one who has the family idols that Rachel ends up taking with them. Um, and we'll remember that, that, that Abraham's family, um, were, were moon God worshipers when Abraham is called away from his family. But there does seem to be a level of respect and acknowledgement about the God of Abraham. Maybe they had heard about the God of Abraham and how he had blessed Abraham. And so they had kind of adopted him even as another God that they're worshiping. I don't know. I don't know how much worshiping is going on towards him or how much just general respect they have. What they do step back and say is there's certainly something bigger at play here than we can even denounce. Right? Like all the circumstances you're talking about and how they've played out. We're certainly going to give acknowledgement. If he's not our God, he's at least your God. And we're going to acknowledge that he's doing something here. Um, and so we're going to yield to that. Um, but Laban does seem to have kind of some ulterior motives. In um, verse 30, it talks about him noticing the gifts that have been given. It's kind of the first thing he notices. It says, as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, then he runs out to meet the man. So I think there's some materialism even attached to Laban as well as to the things that he's noticing and how he can benefit from what's playing out here. Uh, but ultimately, the family does trust the servant, um, and this relationship begins on an, on an attitude of trust from the family, believing that it's a good thing for Rebecca to go. But we definitely see a trust from Rebecca that's demonstrated as well. Um, Rebecca seems excited from the beginning, right? And so we, we talked earlier, why would this girl be so excited to leave her family within 24 hours of finding out that this guy's come to find a wife for this guy that she's never met, never never seen before, doesn't know anything about. I don't know if when he talks about Abraham to her, 
that the level of excitement increases because maybe she's heard a lot about Abraham. Maybe she knows that, that one of their close family members left and God has been blessing them and taking care of them. This may have been kind of a legend for her, Abraham and his people, and, and, and they've come back now and, and I get to go off and be a part of it. I also speculated that maybe she's at an age where she's wondering, am I ever going to have a man that wants to marry me? And so she's, she's ready to move when that happens in her life. Um, whatever the case, she's definitely excited from the very beginning. She has this conversation with the servant. She is running home to tell her family about this interaction. Um, she echoes Abraham's response by willingly leaving her family as well. And, and so uh, in the same way that we say, man, how could she be so ready to leave everything behind? It's the same faith demonstrated by Abraham, right? God comes to Abraham and says, leave everything behind. Go to a place that you don't know to, to be with people that you've not met. Same thing for Rebecca here. And so she's demonstrating exactly why she's been chosen to be Isaac's wife. She's demonstrating a level of faith already here. Whether she fully knows God yet or not, I don't know. Right, like a lot of the past, well, a lot of the commentators that want to emphasize the relationship part of this, make sure you find a godly girl for your son. I don't know how godly she is. She may have been as godly as Abraham was when he was called out, a moon worshiper who just responds to God's first initial calling. I don't know, um, but she definitely demonstrates the similar level of faith uh, that Abraham demonstrates. Um, Rebecca ultimately operates off of answered prayer and providential acts. She is alert to what God is doing in response. Um, and this is probably worth noting for us as well, that we need to be alert to the things that are going on around us and be able to respond and act when we see prayers that are being answered and we see obviously God at work around us. I think that's what, and that's what really leads her into the confidence, this is what I need to do. This guy's praying in a certain way. I certainly did exactly what he prayed for. Um, everything's just kind of coming together. This is what needs to happen. So I give you a couple of implications here as we close, um, things that I think we take away from this passage um, moving forward as believers. First of all, we remain in God's will by desiring his will, praying for his will, and obeying his will while remaining alert to what he is doing around us. Okay, so if we want to be believers, and I think we all do, believers that are always in God's will, then we should desire it. Abraham desired it. The servant desired it. They wanted the right girl for Isaac. So we should be in a state where we desire God's will for our life, and we should be actively praying for it, and we should be obeying the things that we do know that God wants us to do. And then we should simply be alert to everything else going on around us that God may want us to be included in. So I, I want God's will for my life, I'm praying for it. I'm doing the things that I know he wants me to do. And I'm keeping my ears open for how he may be working around me and how he may want me to be included in things going on that he hasn't given me clear guidance about. God sovereignly works through the circumstances of those acting in faith. We pray, we trust for guidance, and then we act responsibly in anticipation. Secondly, though, God's providence does not remove man's responsibility. See, the servant doesn't just get to sit back and pray and ask that God will give him the right girl and then go home. It took prayer and action by the servant to gain Rebecca. I put in my notes, prayer is given to make our work effective, 
not unnecessary. We get to pray that God would make what we're doing effective, not remove responsibility for us to do something. Prayer is for our work to be effective, not unnecessary, right? The servant still has to go. He still has to explain the whole process to the family. He still has to be persuasive. He still has to give gifts to make the whole thing kind of play out. Now, God's at work. Everybody's giving God the credit for how this plays out. But it doesn't mean the servant just just gets to sit back and say, Rebecca, you're supposed to marry Isaac. I prayed a prayer. Okay, let me go home and tell my parents. Okay, I'll be waiting for you right here. No, like he has to go there. He has to be persuasive. He has to kind of carry it through. It never removes our responsibility. We don't get to just say that God's going to work things for our good and not actively be doing what God wants us to be doing. Number three. Oh, wait, I didn't put number three. I'm going to give you this quote after it. We ought always to strive We ought always to strive to do maximum good to others because we never know who is watching. We ought always to strive to do maximum good to others because we never know who is watching. This quote here says, Make every occasion a great occasion, for you can never tell when someone may be taking your measure for a larger place. Meaning, You never know who's watching to see your faithfulness in this because they are evaluating you for something greater. Um, Two examples in my own life. I've shared this story several times, probably with people individually. Um, Second year at Liberty, starting my third year, I think, at Liberty, um, I had been working at uh, the the student center, Um, had been just your average guy that made smoothies and poured coffee and sold candy bars at the student center. Um, and what we were responsible for at the beginning of the year is we always had to be a part of the, the, um, the, uh, welcome back block party for all the freshmen. And so that was our job to help run that. And then after the event, uh, the next day, actually it was for all students. The next day classes started like at 8 AM. Um, and we'd be up till like midnight putting this thing on. And then we had to clean it all up and still be at class at 8 AM the next morning. And so, by the time the end of the, the event, everybody's done. Everybody's looking for the easy way out. When do we get to go home? And we were told to pick up trash until we were told not to pick up trash. Um, and so I did what I was told to do. I grabbed a trash bag and just started picking up trash all over the parking lot. One by one, people started sitting down, and they were done. You know, I got an 8 o'clock class. Let's get out of here. We've picked up enough trash. And, and I was the last one picking up trash. Everybody else had stopped. Everybody else felt like we were done. I kept picking up trash. Then they pulled everybody together. Thanks for all your hard work. Everybody go home. Adam, we want to see you tomorrow. Um, Brought me in and said, we noticed that you were the only one that stayed and picked up trash the whole time. We want to offer you a management position. It's going to include tuition. It's going to set you up basically for the rest of your college career. For the next four years, I didn't pay a dime to to Liberty for my education. Um, Graduated debt-free. Um, had all of my education, had my, had my master's degree paid for because I picked up trash when I was told to pick up trash. Um, Rebecca comes out and simply shows her character by saying, I'll go the extra mile and water your camels. She doesn't know that she's being set up for one of the, the greatest positions on earth at that time. She's just being who she is. Um, when, when I went to Snowbird, um, I went... I really, I went to find a wife. Like, I'm not scared to say that. Um, I was at a point in my life where I wanted to do full-time ministry. Um, I had interviewed for enough ministry jobs and been told 
We're not hiring you until you're married. For me to step back and say, I know I'm not called to singleness. I'm called to be married because the things that I want to do, I can't do until I'm married. And so um, one of the reasons that I went to Snowbird was in hopes of finding a wife. And within the first couple of weeks, um, I'm doing my due diligence and, and trying to determine who, who I would like to marry. And, and Lauren, Lauren stood out to me because of some of the simple things that she did that revealed her character. Um, I noticed how early she was up studying the Bible with other girls there. I saw how she interacted with students and how she invested and gave up of her own time to serve. And immediately, within the first few weeks, and that's why I could confidently tell her when I sat down with her the first time, I said, um, I'm not interested in just dating you. I, I want to pursue you for marriage. Um, because I had seen her character come out, I think, in a similar way that Rebecca's character came out. That who she was was on display very quickly for that servant to see. And I believe within the first few weeks of camp, I could see very clearly Lauren's character. Um, and it was from then on that I began to fall in love with her. Um, but really, then kind of the last point. Um, oh, there it is. There's number three. Um, number four. Marriage should be viewed as an opportunity for learning how to love each other. Um, Isaac and Rebecca come together. They don't know each other, right? Um, they come together and they're married and, and they kind of start their life together. And really, marriage is about learning how to love each other. Um, and that was kind of the commitment that I made to Lauren there that first night that we even talked and talked about our feelings for each other, is that I've seen your character. You're the type of girl that I want to love for the rest of my life. Um, I'm not, I'm not full-blown in love with you right now. I've only known you a couple, a couple of weeks. Um, and we've been separated from having a lot of in-depth conversations. Um, but if, if you're willing... Um, I, I want to pursue marriage with you. And um, similar to Rebecca saying, I'm ready to go, Lauren said, yeah, let, let's do that. I'd like to have you pursue me to marriage. And so God orchestrated those events for me and her as well to bring us together. Um, and I think God works that way. And I think it's the normal way that God works. Maybe not in big, miraculous ways that we can, we can look at and say, wow, we serve a supernatural God, unless we begin to see him working in our normal lives in normal events, but bringing them together for good purposes, we look at that and we say, that is a miracle. It is a miracle how God does that. Um, and I think that's what we see from this chapter, God working in normal ways, but he guides us and directs us into the right situation. Um, and, then, and then Isaac and Rebecca are able to um, enjoy this. And this is a closing point because I know we still have uh, singles in our church here. Two points of, of emphasis in leaving. I think for our guys, our guys have a responsibility to get to the point where they can be married, they get their things in order, they figure out what they're doing, and then they, they get active in pursuing marriage. That, that it, it shouldn't be a, a sit back and I'm just going to wait for God to make it clear to me that I'm going to move forward, that I know that I want to be married, and I'm going to move forward about being active to pursue marriage with someone. And then for our girls, who, who I would say should have more of a, a passive approach in waiting for someone to pursue them, that they're like Rebecca, that they're alert to the things going around, around them, they're, they're seeing how God's at work around them, and they're ready to move. They're ready to move quickly when they see God moving um, in that direction. Okay? Um, hopefully there's a lot of things there you can take away from today. Um, I think, again, kind of going back to the, uh, the big point at the very beginning with our summary sentence, we can trust in God's promises that he's going to give us guidance and success as we responsibly obey the things that we know he wants us to do we can trust that he's going to help us understand the things that aren't clearly revealed to us, those things that he wants us to do as well. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you and thank you again for 
your word and just the opportunity to celebrate it this morning by reading it and giving attention to it. I thank you that you're the type of God who does work in all areas of our life and that you are uh, a God of providence who works things for the good of your children and so we can uh, see circumstances and situations playing out in certain ways. Um, And God, I thank you that we can pray and ask you for those things, that we can pray and ask for guidance when we don't know what you want us to do. Um, and God, even at times, maybe when we're so pressed and, and so confused that, that we can trust that at times you will answer in specific ways that help us know exactly what you want us to do. Um, Father, I thank you that, that we, um, we can trust and believe in you uh, for those things. Um, God, I pray that we'd be the type of people that, that put our character on display for others to see um, and that you would re- reward people for that character um, in the way that you uh, were able to to give attention to Rebecca because of her character and to elevate her into this position. Um, Father, I pray that you'd help us to always be mindful that people are watching us and that um, just because you're uh, in control of everything, it doesn't remove our responsibility to do our part, to be obedient and to try to do the maximum good for those around us. I pray that we'd be the type of people that would look to go the extra mile uh, to serve other people just like Rebecca did. And uh, Father, we just thank you and praise you for your providential control and how you do assure us that you are always working good for your children. We praise you and thank you for everything this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.